Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Football Media Podcast, part of the team of John O'Shea's network. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly football podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week I'm speaking to Dr. Dan Parnell, Senior Lecturer in Business Management at Manchester Metropolitan University. In the course of our conversation, we discuss the role of academia in football, the relationship between academia and the football media, and spend some time discussing Dan's chapter on sporting directors in a recent anthology. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure. And if you're a social media person, you can follow us on Twitter at footymediapod or alternatively you can follow the team of John O'Shea's network at T-O-J-O-S underscore. Next week, we'll be talking to Stefan Bienkowski about the Scottish context within the football media, subscription models and his own website, The 2.1. But until then, here's Dr. Dan Parnell and the phenomenon of football academia. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Dr. Dan Parnell, Senior Lecturer in Business Management at MMU. Dan, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, John. Made up to be involved, so thank you for having me. Cool. At the beginning of each of these episodes, I like to give the guest a chance to sort of situate themselves, give a bit of context about their background. So could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are and what your current job entails? Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. I think at this point, people usually give a bit of a a sob story about either an injury-prone career or where where they should have made it but never made it, but I haven't really got one. The best I got was captain of my county, uh, Cheshire, at under-18s. And then I wasn't big enough, wasn't fast enough, wasn't good enough, and that, that was it, really. Before that, I've just been a, a massive Everton Football Club fan. Been involved in football coaching since about 16. At 18, I started doing my badges, and I stayed on with the county youth side as a coach. Enrolled in an exercise and science, well, exercise and health degree at Liverpool John Moores University, which happened to be like the, the home of, of football science. So my background is in exercise and health and football science. And then when I went to, to do my PhD, which is a bit by chance, I had an interview for an MPhil at right. Everton Football Club. And because I was a fan, I thought, well, this would be great to work at Everton. On my way into my, my MPhil interview, I met a friend and he I said, well, what, what's an MPhil? What, what does it all involve? And he said, just, just don't worry. Just tell him you want to do a PhD. And as far as you're concerned, Dan, people will call you a doctor on the estate. So for me, that was, that was okay, I'll go for it. And at the end of the interview, he said, Dan, if we offered you the job, would you accept it? And I said, yeah, no problem, as long as it's a PhD. They must have thought they had someone intelligent and a really bright, <laughs> bright student in front of them, and instead they got me. I started the PhD on exercise and health, and it swiftly changed into business management, change management and quality assurance. And I kind of worked... Worked at, at John Moore's, an absolutely fantastic place, and football science was kind of founded there by uh, the, the late professor Tom Riley, and he, him and the, the supervisors that I had there, uh, Professor Dave Richardson, Professor Barry Just, Professor Gareth Shatton, were were key influences in my development and and myself as an academic. I worked at a number of universities in Scotland, and then the University of Derby, Leeds Beckett University, before being. I'm not going to say headhunters, but I was moved over to Manchester Met Uni to help support 
the Masters in Sport Directorship and then to teach on some of the sports programmes. So my current role, my day-to-day role is around teaching undergrad sport management and marketing programme. Uh, I'm involved in the, our new Masters in Sport Business Management and Policy and then I've led the research on our Masters in Sport director, Directorship since its conception. So we've had 37 graduates on that programme. That has been an absolute honour to be involved with. And I guess outside that role, I'm involved in a, a few executive roles on on the board of the sports think tank. And then I've just joined recently on the management board of the Association of Sporting Directors. So it's quite a varied role, but all around around football, sports and, and business management. That's really interesting. I had no idea that the, the route was that circuitous and you ended up in academia that way. So given that my next question is about moving in towards the, the, the issues of what the relationship between academia and football and football media might be, I'm, I'm sure you'll have plenty of interesting things to say. So I think I'll start, I'll start off with the basics. So I think a lot of people who will listen to this podcast won't really know what academia is. I think even so far as academia is not really mentioned in terms of a phenomenon when it comes to football so maybe if you could explain what you what you see the role of academia being like obviously what you've described to us doesn't really conjure up the ideas that a lot of people have about academia which is fusty old men sat in ivory towers writing about medieval manuscripts so how do you see the role of academia and and then we'll move on to st- start talking about how that might engage in the football world talking candidly i'm not gonna i'm not gonna necessarily demystify some of that i think there is a lot in HE and in every university element of people stuck in ivory, ivory towers and people involved in research for the sake of th- themselves and their own career. I think ultimately the role of academia and how I would view the role is to, is to challenge the status quo. And it kind of rings through a lot of the things and the, that a lot of the things that I'm involved with and also the people that I'm involved with, which is particularly important and, to challenge what what goes on is about engaging, informing, and influencing people that are around you. The key thing about academic pursuits and and how there's probably been challenges in the past in in mainstream academics. This could be any area. Is that people want to go into a particular context, whatever it may be, and they assume they can just feather their own nest so they can engage, take the data, take the research, and help progress their own career, particularly in. in in sport and football, there seems a really good foundation from, from the guys that were involved in developing this field around not doing that, about not going in and taking. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but particularly within within sports science, it's a very much about you can't go in there and take. You've got to go in there and support, the, put the club, put the organisation, put the people, whoever that may be, first, and then your research becomes a... A, a secondary part of that but also always explicitly research but a secondary outcome to that I'm not saying that is always the case but for me it should always be about the individual the organisation and the people that you're working with and just challenging what's going on and some people don't really like that they don't like you to ask questions of I get people say often well this, this person owns this club what right do we have to challenge what they do it's their money it's their business the only problem with that is history tells us if that we leave people to do things without challenging, then there's problems. And really one of the major cases of that is Hillsborough. People go unchecked, people go unchallenged, and things can slip through the net and some disasters can happen at some of the major ends. At a more lower point, it's about it's about challenging uh, challenging people. And if you want to challenge the status quo, you can look at change at a number of different levels. So an individual, an organisation, or maybe at a, po- a policy level. Each are really difficult to try and implement at different levels, but 
ultimately we're, we're looking at change and improvements and enhancements, particularly within business management. How can we make things work better and more effectively? Mm. No, that's really, really interesting. And I think the good thing about what we're going to talk about later is your paper on sports directors does allow us to see very practical instances of the way that you are challenging the status quo. So, but we'll talk about that later. Before we move on, maybe I could just throw in a curveball question, which isn't on the, I didn't, didn't send you in the running order, but I think this would be an interesting question to ask just about how you would place yourself then with respect to the football media then. Um, to what extent does the, the academic world, especially this academic world of football commentary, how does that, how would you say that you fit into football media? Would you say there's, there's absolutely no overlap at all? Is there people contacting you and looking for comment or is it something that you just sort of feel as though isn't really, isn't really done by the, the media? I think every academic views views the world differently, and some will view the, the the media with contempt for various and and valid reasons, and and some will not want to touch it because it might. If you do anything like this, you open yourself up to criticism, and some people we don't necessarily need or require that within the role. For for others, we see it as, and I would say, I'm part. This is is almost part of the gig now. So. Part of engaging and informing and influencing has to be through different channels. And if we want to reach different people, media is one way of being able to gauge, engage with people. Uh, one of the, the challenges that, that my research has identified is a lack of understanding around the sport and director role, for instance. So if I just tell the people that I meet, then I'm going to limit the number of people I can reach and engage with and, and bring within that network. So I have to use multiple uh, strategies to share share insight and to reach and to share share the research. Some research, as you'll know, just is read by maybe 16 or 17 people if, if people are lucky and it, it falls within an abyss. One of the challenges now is to is to have a have a genuine impact and part of that is making people aware in the first instance of what research you're doing. So I think I'm part of it. I think sometimes I, I reach out to people and sometimes people contact me. I think with football you can get contacted about all sorts of different topics. So the really good thing about me, I, I see in my network, is being able to put people in touch with the experts. So if someone contacts me and asks me about um, the psychology of penalties, you're not going to see me talking about that on Sky Sports. I'm going to be trying to pass that on to the uh, the people that are, are most yeah. equipped to be able to answer that question. Uh, I think when you get dragged into, not dragged into, if you engage with sport media and you, you go in a potential expert or guru which is very very skeptical is that you have to know exactly what you're talking about and you have to make sure it's within your your area which does, which is not always the case so some academics yeah. are guilty of that so i think just being being honest and genuine and talk about what you know what you don't know just say that you don't know and you know things work out all right yeah and i don't think that's a particularly uh regular quality in a lot of academics are admitting that they don't know something so that's refreshing to hear in that vein do you think that there's a streak of anti-intellectualism that runs through football and if you do how would you say that it affects your job I mean, you've already mentioned the fact that there's there's a lot of distrust of of some even some of the the language used to describe sporting directors or even the ideas that you would expect um, people to accept a sporting director to do obviously do you think that's such a general attitude that a lot of people have I believe that like there's there is hostility hostility and mistrust in all parts of sport. I would say within football there's certainly hostility and mistrust. It does happen with academics, but it's not confined to academics, so it's it's almost sometimes part of the environment. Trust for me is based on relationships and if you have academics that that drop in and take 
and don't give something back, then it creates mistrust and bad reputations. I'm really confident that they've got a lot of good people working out within clubs at the minute, which has been developed over the past uh, 20, 30 years. So any anti-intellectualism that might might exist is confined to certain pockets or certain people. So if you look at many clubs now, they've got intellectuals, if you want to use that term, who are who have PhDs, have degrees, masters, or engage regularly in professional development. And these are the guys that you want to you wanna work with. And these are the guys that end up navigating within your network. So there's a saying that goes, you know, you, the more you know, the more you realise that you don't know. These are often the people that become part of your network because they want to learn and realise that within their day-to-day capacity, to be able to get the head up and take in new information, they need a, not just a bigger network, but a more strategic network of different thinkers that can bring new things to the table. With sports science and medicine, if you look at the likes of Marlon Morgans and Tony Shudduck, those guys have got PhDs and are regularly publishing, providing elite top-level insight into the work to inform the next generation of students and practitioners coming through. So I admire those type of people, and they're part of the foundations that were put in 20, 30 years ago. So if you then look at the sporting director and talent ID and recruitment, I think we've got a long way to go in terms of the professionalisation of that area but also building up the number of people in there that are that are able to come at it from a different perspective and with that academic background. So how much would you say that the football world is influenced by academic research? And do you think you can give us any examples of ways that academic research has benefited the football world? Yeah, I guess it, I guess one of the, the standout things for me and one of the, the most personal emotive ones is looking at the role of, of academics and academia and scholarship around the, the Hillsborough case is particularly important. I guess if you drag that through to now, um, we see the emergence of safe standing and that and that initiative and campaign, which again is is being fed through by by evidence and the way fans are treated. I guess they they ring true for the type of networks that I'm in. They're particularly important. If you spin out from a, a sports science and medicine perspective, then plenty of academics are having a creating real changes at like an individual level directly with athletes, but also at a club wide level and further afield. From a business and management perspective, there's a, a number of academics that are heavily influential in in informing uh, future leaders, whether that's through Masters in Sports Directorship or through the League Managers Association accreditations or through the marketing and business programmes run by UEFA. There's plenty of crossover there and I think there's a lot more relationships between a lot more relationships between academics uh, and academia in general and different elements of the football business. One of the other things that you've been involved with to sort of start moving moving across towards your own work is the Football Collective, which um, is a group of, well, you're the best person to tell us about this. So could you tell us a little bit about the Football Collective, um, what, it's, what it is, what its goals are, and who its members are? I think this ties into some of the things we've talked about already. As an academic, you, it's, if, you, if you go onto Twitter, or as anyone, you'll, you'll quickly see that PhD students, early career researchers sometimes get have a bad experience, they can feel isolated, they can feel undervalued, they might not have a network of support within or outside their university. So a number of us, and this can be PhD students, early career researchers or, or esteemed professors, we got together with a view of just helping each other and having a bit of a social. Um, we had a shared idea of how we viewed the world and also you know, how we thought we could help each other. When we had this initial meeting, we realised we could have invited another another two or three people each to 
um, who would have benefited from the day. So we took a punt and put it online about two years ago, called it the Football Collective, and we've got over 300 members now. And to join, you've, and we've got everyone from journalists to chief execs, the people from the Premier League, the FA, through to professors, to through to undergrad students from Brazil, as far as, far as away as Brazil. Um, to join, you've got to commit to being able to open to help others. And the work is very much just about sharing what we do and trying to work out strategies for better research, more innovative research, multidisciplinary research, and also being better at supporting and sharing each other in, in this process and making sure if people are at a, a disadvantage or are facing some kind of inequality in, in higher education, they've got a network of support there. Uh, we've got a forthcoming event which ties into what I've said as well around challenging the status quo up in Glasgow in last Thursday and Friday in November this year. That whole event is around taking a look at what's going on and saying, right, what can we, what do we know about it? How can it be improved? What, what can we learn from what goes on in other sports or businesses? And just ultimately just challenging what goes on for the better. Um, and that, that, that's it, really. We don't know what it's going to look like or what it's going to be in five years' time. There's no account. There's no budget. It's run solely by, by goodwill. And the, the founder members have become incredible uh, mechanisms of support, collegiate help, and also friendship. So the, it's been incredible. And that network, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it, but I'm very I'm very fortunate and humbled by the amount of people who, who want to buy in. And it just shows the goodwill I think that goodwill is incredibly important within within that fo- that football scholarship area. But again, we're, we're hopeful that it'll grow and become more effective. But what it might look like in five years' time, we, we don't we don't know. Yeah, so that is the that's the football collective. You can find them on Twitter at fb underscore collective, and they have a website footballcollective.org.uk, and the information about the the conference is all on there. That's a, like you say the last last Thursday and Friday in November. 2018 and it's called challenging the narrative critical thinking in football and i'm hoping to attend i would and i would heartily recommend that anyone else interested would think of doing that i love the football collective i think it's a great uh, initiative i like the fact that there's an emphasis on support and helping one another out because particularly in my field of work support can often be hard to come by and having been in academic as well i know that support is very hard to come by in uh, in that area as well Let's move on to talk about your paper because we've, I know we've, we've talked in very much generalities at the moment. And I think, you know, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. And it will just be a lot easier for, for the listeners to get a good sense of what it is that you're doing if we talk about your paper practically. So could you intro- introduce us to your paper? Um, maybe tell us a little bit of what, about what it's, what it, what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll set the scene generally because it's, um, it's a chapter for an anthology in, on business and football, right? So if you could tell us a little bit about the chapter, um, talk a, a little bit about the structure of it and then maybe we can talk our way through it yeah no problem well the paper itself is about exploring the current practice and challenges within elite elite football with a particular focus on the sporting director so over the past past three years i've been working with sporting directors uh, or aspiring sporting directors and as as football itself particularly new owners seek to protect their investments and gain a competitive advantage one strategy has been the adoption of like a sporting director role the only problem we've had is that within the academic literature, there's very little known about just what goes on and trying to find a definition for the role or research or insight into it has been very difficult. So there's only been a couple of pieces of research so far. As I was going through the different courses and I began to teach and engage with, with, with these folks is that 
I was conscious I was becoming a little bit like the sporting director police because you have your own interpretation of what it should be based on evidence and research literature from effective businesses and organisations. But the only problem with that is that it doesn't engage with anyone and there's no way it's necessarily going to influence people. So with this piece of work, it's part of a, a broad initiative. So over the past couple of years, I've been spending time with sporting directors, director of footballs, chief execs, owners, agents, heads of recruitment, grassroots scouts to get a real feel of top to bottom what goes on within the clubs and what are the operational, what are the strategic issues. And this work was just a, very much about just speaking to sporting directors themselves or people within those roles to get their take on things. And which what's really important, not necessarily for the applied world, but actually I think it is, uh, but for ac- academia, is to be able to define what something is. And I, I think we need to, st- for the sporting director role, getting a clear definition, not from an academic who decides what the sporting director role is, but from the, the people in those roles is really important. And uh, that's what we've tried to work towards in this paper. What I found really interesting about the paper was that in the intro, you're obviously saying, look, football clubs have changed immeasurably in, in recent years and now no longer owned by the sorts of people who you used to get in the in the past. So the Jack Walkers who used to own their local club and uh, ran it because they had a, a specific link to the club and they wanted to see the club do well. These clubs are now being run as businesses. But as a result of, of the fact that they, they have like emerged out of this context where they haven't been run particularly efficiently, there's all kinds of structural problems with, with the way that they're run. And um, I guess both Manchester United and Arsenal are classic examples of, of what what can happen when when you just have this uh, tradition of, of having a very top-heavy club in terms of the, the, the management, management or at least the manager himself uh, overseeing everything. And, and this, this move towards sporting directors is to, is to I guess, slim down the hierarchy and, and spread, spread out the responsibility in different ways. So I found that really interesting going into that. But for, the impression I got from the paper is that, in many respects, this word sporting directors or directors of football or whatever you want to call them, or head of football, you list a whole gamut of different of different titles. They can mean anything in in any club. It, basically, there is there is it can be anything from someone who's all the way up into the board of directors to someone who sort of sits between the manager and the and the and the director. And they can be either doing mainly uh, business things, or they can be doing uh, they can also be involved in the transfers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, tell us a little bit about about what you found the, the the role of the sporting director to be in general. Do you think there's a sort of consensus position, or is it just so so general and varied that you can't really make a, a hard and fast rule about? Yeah, I think first off, we, we, the two comments about Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger is that the the key things about this is these clubs can operate however they want, and each club to their own and the way they operate. And but the, the, within those two organisations, and I guess I just want to keep that in mind for some of the issues I talk about with that have come out from the paper is that they were probably had a lot of these issues organised. So without having the sporting director model, they still had other strategies in place around clear roles and responsibilities, clear communication, and clear strategies around how how they want to do things with an operation. So whilst not natural sporting director roles, they were still very organised clubs. I think the the big findings for me is that the the title is completely flexible. My initial interpretation is that Maybe people within football would be quite protective around their ego, around having a particular title. 
However, the 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 complete consensus that they didn't they did not care about the title one bit. For them, it was very much about the job role and description and that trumped everything else. They needed they needed to be clear about what their job role was and what what would be within their responsibilities and what they'd be accountable for. The third thing that stood out was that their sporting director was not always on the board. So that, that changed quite that varied quite a lot. So some had a, a board influence, some had to manage up and down. Uh, so they sat below the board. And then one thing that, that was really apparent is that there didn't appear to be clear communication around the job roles internally and, and externally. So that raised a number of issues. I guess one of the, one of the standout things is when someone gets offered a, a job as a sporting director or a director of football, technical director, is as you mentioned, despite the, the best intentions of every well and reasoned man and, and 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 woman in the world, is that if you get offered one of these jobs in a in a, especially in like the likes of a Premier League Championship club, you just want to say yes. You want to snap someone's hand off and get a job, a really quality, high, well well played job in a top club. The problem with that is in the in the rush to to get a job is that they often not necessarily nailed down the actual job role and description of what they were doing. And this has a number of consequences, most importantly around how they are assessed on their performance. And then secondly, how they are viewed internally and externally. So internally by the staff, so what do the staff expect them to be doing? And then externally by the media. Some of the initial things that springs to mind is that some of the people we interviewed had the title of director of football or head of football operations. But the, the remit for recruitment was not actually within their role. But this wasn't necessarily clear from it, from the media or fans' perspective or some, some necessarily some people within their clubs. So this, this creates a number of problems. As you can imagine, if we look at Manchester United for the minute, when when someone is linked to a job, people go through what sport and director's best signings have been and they usually pick up one or two players. So if someone is being, is being held responsible for recruitment, it could work really favourably in their impression within the club and also to help them move on to another club. And the same extent, if someone's been held responsible for recruitment, but actually their focus is on developing academy players and supporting the under-23s recruitment, then they might they might get sacked for something that is not necessarily within their remit of control. So I guess that was some of the issues that, that popped up in the first instance. Would you expect that in the future we will see most clubs having a sporting director and would you see that sporting director having responsibility primarily over that recruitment side of things? I, th- I think if you speak to academics, they'll often say, well, it, the, the sporting director role in its true form should not, should not just be about recruitment. However, everyone I've spoke to within the interest, industry, it's very much about recruitment and you'll be judged on the players that you bring in and sometimes you'll be judged on the manager that you bring in. It, it may be that in the future the sporting director role will evolve in England, but at the minute, anyone that role will be judged on on their recruitment. I think as it stands, because recruitment's so important, we're going to get a certain type of people that go into that role. So it'll be people that are used to negotiation, people that are good at deals, people that are good at finding, either identifying or developing talent. As we as we move into the future, I don't think this will become less important because ultimately football is about talent. It's about finding talent on and off the pitch, but in particularly the backroom staff, the manager and the players. Do I think it'll be it'll become a more common role in the future? I think there's no doubt about it that more clubs are gonna are gonna try a sport and director role. But at the minute they're all trying it in different in different ways. 
I don't think you have to have a sporting director necessarily in place, but I just think it's an option. I think given the number of managers that are, or the high level of turnover managers at the minute, I don't think that's going to slow down. And we're not all of a sudden go going to start giving managers four or five years to settle themselves in, because at that point, a club may go from the Premier League to, to League One. So managers are going to come and go just as fast. So clubs are going to need someone who is that custodian or the guardian just to oversee things to make sure there is a recruitment strategy. So the manager can still have have their say, but there's still a recruitment strategy of the club. There's a consistent playing style. There's a philosophy, DNA around what they're doing. So I do think it will become more common, but I think I think some clubs will do it their own way, and, and, and that's more than fair. I think one thing that will be key to wherever the role develops is the people in the role now and how they advocate, deliver and develop themselves within those roles. And it'll also it'll also depend on how the role professionalizes. So it's got to involve education, research, um, and I think I think there's a, a lot to be done in that area. So whilst whilst the education side for the sporting directors are developing, the question is whether there's enough time for them to develop and where there's enough support for them to develop for the, the broad and strategic roles that they're undertaking. But it's an exciting time, so yeah, I expect it, I expect it to be a, become more common. Again, another maybe curveball question that isn't on the running order, but would you say that the majority of football clubs then are, if you view them entirely as, as business enterprises, would you say they're generally badly run? I think generally, if you look at, if you look at a football club, the non-football apartments, and I'm talking in very general terms, well run and well organised, and it's very much a, a a matter of of financial control and generating funds, and there's clear remits and responsibilities. I think what we see when it comes to the football side, and why I view a sporting director so important, important, is that some owners, boards, chairman may be influenced too too quickly or too easily by a really well-spoken or a really esteemed football manager. And maybe this is this would be true of some sporting directors. But the challenge there is, I think, for, for owners to, is to make sure they have the people who take these roles who've got experience, not necessarily someone who's just been a manager for years, uh, but they've got a vast amount of experience that can engage in recruitment, in, in financial control and budgets, negotiation, as well as being able to understand the the issues around developing talent from the talent uh, from the academy through to first team, so I think there's still going to be issues around around the role in the future. So coming back to the questions that we've been asking all the way through, basically impact. So what sort of recommendations did you put in place at the end of the paper? And so these are sort of practical the practical out, outlays of what you've been studying. And do you expect those to have much of an impact on the clubs themselves? Yeah, well, there were six key things for us. So one, you just need clearly defined roles for the sporting director and the people around them. So, so I challenge sporting directors who go to interviews to help put this in place before they take the role. I think that's really key to look at what they'll be doing and, and also setting the standard for how they want the organisation to run. The second one's education. So... It's, and I say this is education of sporting directors, so we need to look at pathways and qualifications. So there's a number of universities doing sporting director courses. There's the FA Level 5 Technical Director course. So for me, it's, it's, it's what education is around and how accessible and how easy it is for these guys, guys to engage with that. That's important. 
The third one is recruitment and development pathways for sporting directors. So we'll pick up one example. I'm really intrigued by the skill set you need of a sporting director, although it varies across clubs. I think the loan managers, I think the experiences that they have in clubs might put them in a really good position to be future sporting directors. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. The fourth issue is research. So this kind of stuff is just dipping our toe in, but we need a distinct context and a specific body of knowledge to help understand what's going on. For me, I think part of that is understanding the role of social networks and how that influences relationships between owners, agents, sponsors, players and fans. So there's some interesting stuff going on that I think we should explore. I think there needs to be regulation and support. So hopefully through the, the likes of Similar to the PFA and LMA, that the Association of Sporting Directors will be a way of helping professionalise and support sporting directors. That although you move into a strong position, we've also seen over the past couple of years, sporting directors or those in that role are also facing precarious positions where unfortunately they haven't been brought in uh, with a long term viewpoint, but they've been released early for different reasons. And then finally, that like is around ethics and code of, con- code of conduct. So this is not just for sporting directors, it's more for football, but we need a set of values and ethical principles that we operate within. And I think sporting directors, given the influential potential of the role, should should lead the way with that. Our might have an impact. It, it's all very it's all very, very hopeful. So there's a couple of courses, one at the University of Salford, one that we run at Manchester Met Uni around the sporting director. And I hope, obviously they will hopefully will take our research and, and work with students to help share that and as will the FA. Uh, with the technical directors course so there's hope that it will directly impact the education that goes on i think i need to get out and share it more in different ways and tell more people around around it but the the best way to do that and the only way to that is through relationships so being on the manage board management board of the association of sporting directors um, we're going to create a number number of articles around the research that is in in the language of the sporting directors to help about engage inform and hopefully influence and help them on their on their journey uh, but like with anything this is the very start of what i think is a, a big journey for sporting directors so you've got to think about the long run so you've got to build relationships up you've got to take your time and like with anything if people read a piece of research it doesn't mean they're going to act on it and behavior change and change within organizations can ha- ha- sometimes takes time to find the right time so for so for me very much hoping over the next 10 years maybe that Produce more more research, better research, and keep working with people that, that genuinely want to develop, genuinely want to enhance what they do and get better at what they do. And within that period, you know, I'll, I'll hopefully find a good network of people that are at the forefront of creating change within clubs, and hopefully I'll be part of Maybe a slightly more fun question to end with. Uh, you mentioned that you're an Everton supporter. I'd have two questions. Firstly, it would be, to what extent when you're supporting a club, do you take an interest in the business side of, of, of that club obviously you've done all of this research into into the business management etc so do you do you sort of have that hat on whenever you're thinking about Everton or is it is it simply something that that your your fandom is simply something that just enjoys the, the football the second question would be analyzing Everton Football Club obviously they've gone through a huge amount of upheaval they've gone through a huge upheaval recently in terms of their business structures, etc., to what extent do you think that they are now looking better run than they were before that? 
I think as a as an academic and as a fan, some people just say, "Oh, well, no, it's it's separate. You you still keep your season ticket. You still keep going. You know, you'll be there beyond the club." And I, I do carry an element of that, but I think I'd be lying if I said it 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 wasn't deeply personal in in many respects. So I don't think I don't think you lose some of that. I think it's you very much view it not as a fan, but just as an informed Everton supporter. When I when I look at Everton and over the past over the past couple of years, I guess it has looked it has looked from the outside like there's been a lot of disarray. And I think there's been one article that the Swansea Football Club put out kind of challenged Everton to say when they were doing the, the Sigurdsson deal that they were in, they were in communication with three or four people at the club. Now you and I both know if they're speaking to three or four people, it means because there's a lack of clarity around who is responsible and accountable for different parts of the business. And if you're conducting a new negotiation, there's going to be challenges if you've got three or four people re- representing one stake at a club. And that deal wasn't particularly done well. So I think that probably represents some of the some of the turmoil that might have been going on at the club at the time. Personally, now, I don't think there's an absence of issues at Everton. I'm very excited to the fact that people do know there's one contact at the club. That contact would be our director of football. Obviously, Silva will take calls and about players from, 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 from all kinds of people. I'm sure Bill Kenwright will be influential as well, but it appears from the outside that the director of football has got a strong handle on that. One challenge I would have is the influence of outsiders, such as brands agents, Mineo Raiola, so what influence will he have on, on players and decisions within the club and also that agent's relationship that's reportedly he has with our, our own at the minute, which seems to be very positive. So I think when there's outside forces, I think it's one really unknown part of football that people don't like to talk about but know exists. I think we need a, a better way to get under the skin of some of that and see what's going on across football, not just Everton. And on the field, how are you feeling about Everton this season? Are you excited? <laughs> I'm like every other Everton fan. I'm pretty pessimistic, regardless of what goes on. So, so no, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for me. I'm hopeful that it goes all right. Me little boy, as a, I, mean, I still coach me little boys team. It's under 11 to the shafts. I'm still hopeful that we have a few good wins this year, a few, few good goals, and things to celebrate with, with, for me, with me little boy and, and my dad. However, I just think that I think Silver's arguably a little bit unknown. I think we've got some big challenges coming up and we've still invested an awful lot of money again and we don't know how it's going to work out. So at Christmas, anything could happen. And I guess that's everything at the minute. We never know what we're going to get. So I don't expect anything different this year. Well, I could talk to you all evening, but I should really let you go. Dan Parnell, how can we follow you on social media? Where's where's your work going out? So most of my stuff goes, goes through Twitter. So it's at Parnell underscore Daniel and anyone anyone to get in touch just give us a shout and I'll send over my email address or my number and anyone to copy of the research no problem at all well thank you very much for coming on I hope it was good fun for you as well John thanks very much for having me I really appreciate your time thanks for listening to the football media podcast with me John McKenzie if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at footy media pod you can tune in next week to hear Stefan Bianchowski talk about the Scottish context within the football media subscription models and his own website the 2.1 but until then have a good week goodbye